What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Dolliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, I can already hear you trying to convince us. Oh, I'm a nice guy. I'm an optimist. I always look at the bright side of life. But, Michael, we're not going to allow you to go to your normal tendencies on this episode. It's going to be a little something different because the entire sporting world was able to witness on Sunday night the deep-seated hatred that Michael Jordan has for the Detroit Pistons, the Bad Boys Pistons of the 1980s. I'm not sure there's anyone in the world that I hate as much as Michael Jordan hates Isaiah Thomas. And I'm just going (laughs) to give you a real quick rundown of a few of his statements Obviously, this is a family show, so there's going to be liberal use of of bleeping because basically Michael was talking in Morse code, if you like type it out. I mean, there's so many dashes here. He goes, Isaiah Thomas was a bleep hole spewing bull bleep, losing to the Pistons, bleeping hurt because they made it personal and physically beat the bleep out of us. Jordan encouraged his teammates not to bleeping whine to the officials about the Pistons' tactics, but to be strong and beat these bullies. And then to top it all off, Horace Grant got in on the action, saying that the Pistons acted like straight-up bleeps, the B-word, when they refused to shake hands after losing the 1991 Eastern Conference Finals. And the big headline takeaway was Michael Jordan saying, I hated them. That hate carries even to this day and you know anyone who watched it believes him you know there's no convincing needed when you're looking at his reactions especially during the Isaiah Thomas segment I think it's one of the classic moments of basketball theater here but Michael I want to extend this conversation uh, a little bit to just the most hated figures in general I want you to tap that side of your brain uh, that gets angsty, that gets annoyed, that gets frustrated, that gets mad, Michael, and lay out maybe some of the most hated people in the NBA universe uh, <laughs> who have gotten to you. So let's start this conversation here. Uh, do you think there's a group of people who are just sort of like generally hated? Everyone agrees that they're hated. Um, and if so, who would you throw into that category? Yeah. Uh, so this was a really fun topic for you to pick but right off the top you know we're choosing from just anyone associated with the NBA that includes you know players obviously coaches GMs and owners and honestly I had a really difficult time picking any active players who I think are universally loathed by people who watch or, or love the NBA I don't know before we get into my list like I don't did you have any players on your list or was it difficult for you to come up with any no, I think there's definitely some players and we should dig in. But I mean, I think the one that jumps off the screen and he was mentioned, uh, you know, in passing would have been Bill Lambeer. Um, I remember as a child, uh, Bill Lambeer sort of being like the the symbol of everything that was wrong with sports. I mean, of course, there was like the Jordan <laughs> brainwashing aspect of it. But I think the Boston media, they all hated Lambeer. Of course, like the Lakers media, they all hated Lambeer. Um, and part of the reason why was he was really darn good. I mean, I forgot how good he was as a player. I think four all-star, uh, all-star appearances, um, and, but it was the whining on court. He was a very early flopper. Uh, he was always talking trash. He would, you know, famously bow to the crowd. Sometimes when he'd be thrown out of games, there was the hard fouls. I mean, he was just hateable from every angle. But what made it work was that he was completely fine with it. He was all good with being hated. You know, he was he wanted to be the heel. Uh, and it just as a personal story about Lambeer, I actually find the guy in his own way kind of charming. I covered the WNBA playoffs last year, and uh, I had written a story. You know, he had had a press conference basically calling the opposing team soft. So I, I wrote a story. He had read the story before practice the next day, and he was sort of like itching to pick a fight. Uh, you know, he was just, you know, trying to stir things up just like anyone. And, uh, you know, he looks at my credential and he says, oh, the Washington Post, huh? Too bad the Washington Times isn't here. That's a real newspaper. And I was like, oh, awesome. <laughs> and I think Lambeer is right of center. And so I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, this is great. Um, and, you know, at the end of practice, he's like shooting three pointers and he's like, you know, 
And he says this loud enough for everybody to hear. He's like, you know, I would never pay for the Washington Post under any circumstances, <laughs> like very loudly. And I, for, and I never do this, Michael. I'm not a confrontational person, but he was just in the mood. He wanted to go back and forth. So I shouted out to him, give me your email address. I will send you a free 30-day code. And needless to say, uh, we, we didn't follow up on that. I, I never got his email address. But <laughs> he's just a guy. The point of that story is he's a guy who loves to be hated. And that's kind of why it works. And so I would put him as one player absolutely in this category. No, for sure. I mean, there are former players definitely um, who played in an era, I think, where you could get away with more stuff. You you Your role on the team was I mean Bill Lambeer did have skills but his primary role on the Detroit Pistons was as an antagonist to get under the skin of 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 Larry Bird and different players in the Lakers and uh to just be this thorn in their side but my whole thing was like in today's game where you're not really teams aren't really prioritizing that necessary that attitude of a a person or that persona on their roster so you don't really get that same type of character that same type of villain in today's league so i just okay well what about enos canner or what about hassan whiteside i mean i understand it's not quite the same i would say that enos canner has probably a two percent approval rating around the country i mean i think he's probably worse than congress um if you just oh no no come on (laughs) and and this is not because he's a celtic this has been going on for years and years people think he's corny you know people love to make fun of him when he gets to the playoffs and how he gets played off the court i mean hassan whiteside being obsessed with his 2k stats and empty numbers and you know, anyone who has to watch them play, their team immediately gets worse. Like, there's guys who are hated. It might not be the same visceral level of hate. Every time I see an Enos Canner tweet, I'm ready to freaking lose my mind, Michael. And I know I'm not alone. So, well, I uh, I wrote this, uh, like, magnum opus story about Enos Cantor a couple years ago. So I spent like days with him um this was before he was on the boston celtics when he was actually still on the new york knicks and so we hung out for a while and i got to know him pretty well and he's actually a really cool dude and i think he might get a bad rap but i i get what you're saying there and i and i do also get what you're saying about hassan whiteside and there's some other look let's set aside his personal and the the political story which is sure pretty remarkable and you know it's scary but when you're seeing the stuff he's talking trash to KD, you know, being little Russell Westbrook's, you know, little hatchet man, you know, I just, there's, he's leaning into it, I guess is my point. Okay, so, uh, yes, I, I, I see where you're coming from, and where, where I kind of had trouble picking people was, yes, I could pick Enos Cantor, I could pick Whiteside, I could pick Draymond Green, I could pick Russell Westbrook, I could yeah, pick... Michael. Michael, you're tap dancing here, man. You hate Draymond Green. Come on. <laughs> oh, man. No, I, 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 we went over this in the overrated section. I have no personal problem with, with Draymond Green, but I do see why there's a large segment of, of the population that would despise everything about him. He's very unique in this era, and he kind of belongs in that uh, late 80s, early 90s. He's like a throwback in that, in that, in that respect with just his personality, and I think he's really loving... Uh, this time off and his ability to speak openly about the Kevin Durant situation, but that's another topic for another day. No, but- no. Well, let me jump in here real quick because the hate word is definitely dicey. Like I will yeah. say just uh, up front, there's, I don't really truly hate very many things, you know, uh, in life. The smell of eggs, I cannot stand the smell of eggs. I actually <laughs> hate the smell of eggs. Um, there are a few other things like that. But in general, I think I'm with you, Michael. I'm a fairly optimistic and, and generally loving person. This is a little bit more about the sports context of hate, right? Who really gets at you? Um, who Whose actions drive you nuts? And you know what? Because he's Enos Kanter hit close to heart, I'm going to come even closer to your heart, Michael. And I'm going to tell you one guy who I really hate, current NBA player. And again, it's not true hate, but basketball hate. Rajon Rondo. When Rondo quit on oh the Dallas, oh my god! <laughs> when Rondo quit on the Dallas Mavericks, 
it drove me absolutely bananas, right? Like it's one thing for Scottie Pippen to not want to check in on a key moment or a key play because he's wrapped up in the motion uh, of, the, of the situation and wants to be the hero and has lived in Jordan's shadow. And now Kukoc gets the shot in the 1993 playoffs and Pippen is beside himself and can't control his emotions, right? That's one thing. It's another for Rondo to walk the ball up the court, not listen to Carlisle, basically throw a fit and pout on the court, and then essentially just check out and disappear from the team before the end of the series and they move on without him. This is a guy who was held up as this incredible leader in Boston. Is in, actually, everyone would agree, as an incredible basketball genius in mine, sees the angles amazingly well. But because of that personal friction with the coach, he let the whole season tank around him. To me, that was just an unforgivable basketball action. And now in that moment, it, it inspired hate. It, it really deepened my soul, right? Um, that's what I'm going for here, <laughs> Michael. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Uh, it's a little convenient that you took shots at my all-time favorite player right there, but um, well, here's the deal. I mean, you're you're in third gear, like I said, trying to tiptoe around a little bit, trying to be a little bit too PC, and you need to understand the word quarantine is actually French for keep it real. Okay, that's <laughs> that's what we're doing here. It's a little-known fact, a linguistic. Uh, information that I looked up on thesaurus.com today. So Michael, without any further ado, give me some of your hated people, the the people you think that actually everyone would be able to agree on. Because a guy like Rondo, that's a matter of taste, right? I understand he does not have a 2% approval rating. He's probably, you know, closer to 50-50 or 60-40 positive. Um, But uh, who do you think are like the all-timers? So, I mean, to be honest, the list that I've compiled here is really ownership heavy. And I think it could be just my view on the league and my view on society. And now that we're kind of in this situation where uh, the gap between just like the Q rating of, of, of billionaires in general and owners in the league are... It's, it's plummeting, I think, and uh, how some owners have behaved since uh, since the, the season has been on hiatus in terms of how they're helping the arena workers and things like that um, kind of put into uh, put them in under a microscope for me for this exercise. And not all the people on my list have really anything to their actions have nothing to do with what has happened over the past couple of months. But I think ownership and owners have been in my crosshairs in terms of sports hatred more than any active players if okay that so we've got the nba uh, occupy wall street movement you're trying to eat the rich so <laughs> yes. give me give me some names michael okay uh i mean right off the top james dolan i, I feel like he is public enemy number one beautiful uh, pick in the NBA just there's we could literally spend five hours just going over all the reasons why people despise this man um he's taken one of the marquee franchises in all of professional sports and certainly in the NBA the New York Knicks and turned them into a complete laughing stock the you know as someone who has spent quite a quite a bit of time at Madison Square Garden over the past few years just you can just sense the toxicity in the air because of that man whether it's you know just any employees it's just it's it's rough and it makes it a really it he's made it a a, to say nothing of how difficult he's made it for you know media members to operate there and and his personal grudges that he holds over people but even just like the the people who take tickets the the ushers you can just like it's it's pretty rough there. I do not enjoy going there. And um, to say nothing of the uh, terrible personnel decisions that have been made, the coaches that have been fired, the presidents and the GM, uh, the turnover there for obvious reasons. I mean, he's just a he's just a cancerous figure in the NBA. Yeah, there's a real poisonous uh, angle to all of it. That's a great pick. The only guy I think it could really potentially give him a run for his money would be like Donald Sterling, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. think Sterling has got to have like a point zero 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 one approval rating, right? And maybe Dolan gets a point one from his, you know, billionaire buddies because he hasn't, you know, completely disgraced uh, himself in, in the same manner as Sterling. But, uh, you know, now we're engaged in one of the darkest comparisons, uh, you know, in, in human history. So we don't need to go any further there. Who else do, <laughs> who else do you have on your ownership list? Yes, uh, Donald Sterling is repugnant. Um, 
Next up, I have uh, Tillman Fertitta. Wow. I don't know. He's a, I, he's a new entry to the ballpark, isn't he? Yeah, I don't know. Like, who is in Tillman Fertitta's corner right now? Um, nobody. <laughs> it's like, who is who's a fan of this guy? Um, his behavior since the season shut down, uh, his public statements about how he was doing the employees that he furloughed or laid off a favor by getting them into the unemployment line sooner than later. Uh, it's kind of despicable. Uh, this is a billionaire who has cut costs at every opportunity he's had since he bought the Houston Rockets. And it just it, it just makes me wonder, like, why even buy the team? Uh, if you're not going to spend money and make people around you ha- happy, like it's it's a it's a it's a civic like duty in my opinion when you're a, a, the owner of a professional sports team to uh, invest in it and give it every possibility to succeed. And he has not done that since he walked in the door, and it's just a shame because I don't want to say he's like you know, ruining uh, uh, James Harden's prime or anything like that. There have been opportunities for them to win the title with him there, but he's just made it a lot more difficult, and it's a it's a huge bummer. No, you're two for two so far. Uh, it's not easy to crack the top five uh, worst NBA owners list. It's sort of like being a bottom five franchise in the Eastern Conference. Like, you really have to work. <laughs> like, I mean, you that's a, that's a such a low bar. You're playing limbo, right? Um but he's done it. I mean, there is no doubt he's in that top five worst conversation. Uh, he's his own worst enemy. He's. Uh, it's amazing he has a book with Shut Up in the title, and he hasn't figured it out yet. <laughs> <laughs> so great. <laughs> uh, just, just amazing. All right, who else you got? Uh, next up is Clay Bennett. And Oh, so uh, this one's tricky, because isn't he be- kind of beloved in Oklahoma City to a certain degree, even though... Yeah. It's, a, it's a little bit <laughs> controversial with the whole Harden trade and some of the other moves, but he did get them that franchise, right? So, yes, he's, he's he got, got his, them the franchise. He's yes. got his stands, but what you're mad about is the is the theft or the alleged theft? Yes, of, of course. I mean, he says he's going to keep the team in Seattle, and then he moves to Oklahoma City. Um, obviously despicable. Uh, you know, I was doing a little research... I mean, the story is told a million times over of what happened here, but um, something I didn't even remember really, but he was part of the NBA's relocation committee in 2013, and he voted against the move of the Sacramento Kings to Seattle. Uh, You know, it was a unanimous vote that would have obviously hurt the Sacramento Kings and their fans, and that team would no longer exist, and you're kind of just transitioning the pain. But I can see why fans in Seattle would would just like really loathe this individual uh, in general. But then after he made a vote like this, it's uh, it's really bad, and um, I don't think like there's any love lost for him in a lot of segments of the country. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. I mean, I think that you know Blazers fans and the Blazers market had a big rivalry with Seattle for decades, and I think that. The, the hatred was shared by all parties like the enemy of your enemy is your friend kind of situation all of a sudden like the sonics cause became the blazers cause and they all went after mm-hmm. um you know went after bennett too um that's a good pick it's a little bit of a deeper cut it's pretty shocking that seattle doesn't have a franchise still or hasn't even really made any uh you know progress towards it given all the tech money and given that you know if you build a brand new arena odds are pretty good you're going to be in line for it um, the whole thing has been stuck on pause. And I know that for the people who really, truly had that hatred, like the people who wrote the Sonicsgate movie and the fans who were interviewed in that, it hasn't dissipated in any way. They're not moving on. They're only getting angrier. And I completely understand and respect those feelings. Um, and, you know, some of them would even show up at Blazers games years later wearing Durant Sonics jerseys just to boo the Thunder organization, which I always uh, really uh, appreciated, uh, you know, quite a bit. All right, a couple more here, Michael, real quick. Then we're going to move on to your personal hatred uh, candidates. Okay, my last owner here, um, Josh Harris with the Philadelphia 76ers. Um, yeah, they, they've worked their way into a, a tricky spot here the last couple months. I'm not sure. Would they have been on your list, say, three months ago? Yes, or, yes. Oh, yes, okay, yes. lay it out. Why is um, that? So, I mean, Josh Harris, basically, he comes in, he wants to run his team like a hedge fund, uh, you know, cuts costs throughout the 
throughout you know the staff, um, the front office, the coaching staff. A lot of those people were the lowest paid um, relative to their peers in the entire league for the majority of their time there. Uh, he you know sets out on the process. He's all about it, gung ho. Uh, in the middle of the process, he fires Sam Hinkie, turns Sam Hinkie into a scapegoat. I thought that that was a spineless move. Still think it's a spineless move to this day. And uh, I, I, I have nothing nice to say about it. I, I think when you also uh, kind of supplementing that rationale to have him on this list, I mean, this is very little to do with basketball slash absolutely nothing to do with basketball. But there's a story about Josh Harris that I don't think is, has gotten enough uh, uh, enough of a voice or has been talked about enough. And basically, you know, he's the uh, co-founder of the Apollo Global Management uh, private equity firm. It's one of the largest private equity firms uh, in the world. And he loaned uh, a few years ago $184 million to Josh Kushner's real estate firm, essentially trying to buy himself a job in the White House, which he did not get. And I remember when I first read that, and I I mean, I I was appalled by someone literally just in the newspaper, in the New York Times, trying to buy a job in the White House. Uh, And uh, yeah, that was just disgusting. And so I, 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 people like, I mean, it kind of goes back to how complicated it is to sort through feelings for basketball owners, but they're all, a lot of them are just not great uh, individuals and the decisions that they make in their private lives kind of comes out um, in not wonderful ways. And so that's one of the reasons why I have Josh Harris here. Just like, no, that's just not like a cool thing to do at all. What you're really worried about is if they win the title and Adam Silver hands him the trophy, he just puts it on eBay before he lets MB touch it, basically. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just that ruthless level of capitalism where it's like, I got to cash in right now. Yeah, no, I, I hear you, man. Um, underrated nominee. I'm not sure like a lot of casual fans would come up with that name like you're saying, but interesting. Um, let's shift gears here, Michael. I want to okay. know who is on your personal list, okay? And... I think you're warmed up now, and you know, I think you start to get your blood going there a little bit when you're talking about these uh, owners. I told you a couple of mine, uh, you know, Rajon Rondo, uh, Bill Lambeer, although I've really come to appreciate Lambeer as a character uh, throughout that entire scenario. And it's funny, when you're a writer, the villains are great. You want the villains, right? As long as they're not horrible people committing crimes and like ruining society, uh, villains are very useful uh, writing devices for sure. Um uh, one hated person who I who was in that category uh, for Blazers fans uh, still is is Raymond Felton, and the problem was you know he came back <laughs> oh, wow. from the I don't know if you remember this he came back from the lockout season he was just out of shape you know he didn't think the season was going to come back on and uh, he played horribly I mean he's like stumbling <laughs> all over the court falling on his feet uh, he looked a little bit um, you know overweight I took a famous photo of him at a staged birthday party where he was holding a cupcake. And I didn't mean anything by that photo, but it took on a life of its own and became this gigantic meme where <laughs> people would call him cupcakes and and they would always post that photo every time he played poorly. And it got really dark. I think some Blazers fans were seeing like visions of like a new jail Blazers era or something like that because uh, at one point he told all of his critics to meet him at his condo complex so he could fist fight them because he was so sick of the um, That's dark. Uh, of the back and forth. And that was like a, a full week of my life on uh, sports radio, just kind of dissecting those comments. So uh, he continues to get booed mercilessly to this day all these years later. He only stayed one year in Portland. Part of the reason why they hated him was because he had been traded uh, for Andre Miller, a really beloved player uh, by the local fan base, just kind of crafty and old school, and and people Mm -hmm. just liked his game. And there was a lot of hype around, like, Felton's going to be the point guard of the future, going to kind of take Portland over the top, and it just didn't materialize. Of course, he had a pretty high-profile college career, which put him on the map, too. So it was that combination of disappointment, I think perceived laziness, um, the confrontational, like, let's just fight, here's where I live comment, um, all and the cupcake really put it over the top. That combination made him one of the most hated players in Portland. And he was like he would come back years later 
and he would like have like superstar level teammates and the media would ignore the superstars to just swarm Felton and be like, how did it feel to get booed tonight? Like that, that same scene played out for years and years at the Moda Center. So uh, that's a hated player that I don't think most people might know about, but just from a, a fan base standpoint is one that's always stuck with me. I I love that. Uh, <laughs> the total distaste that, that no pun intended, that... Uh, Blazers fans had for Ray Felton always made me chuckle. Um, I didn't really realize that it got that dark, but uh, that's a good choice. That's a funny throwback. Um, no, his condo that- complex was the Indigo. And he's like, you guys want to come down to the Indigo? <laughs> you can meet me. It was just incredible. But now that's not your personal, you don't personally have any problems with Ray Felton, correct? No, I mean, I, he played terribly that season. It really bothered yeah. me how bad he was because like it just... Every narrative there was, like heading in as a more of a beat writer at that point in my career, uh, that there was around that season, he single handedly ruined. Like it was to the point where they were like, <laughs> Nate McMillan was like trying to play Jamal Crawford at point guard, then Nate McMillan gets fired. And it's just like complete chaos. I mean, the whole thing was just an absolute disaster. So it's not that I personally hate him, but when I think of like, when I personally think of like, huh, who are the most hated people in the NBA, uh, it's really hard to top Portland's relationship with Felton. Yeah, that's true. Um, so we're going into people who we've we've personally just we we do not like strongly. I guess yeah, in a sports yeah, sense. Yeah, just like I was saying with Lambeer or Rondo or people like another guy who really bothers me personally is J.R. Smith. When he was untying his opponent's shoes, I lost my <laughs> mind. Like the stuff that really gets me, Michael, it's the sportsmanship stuff, right? It's like come on, and like and I understand the handshake part that Jordan was so fixated on because. Um, he wanted nothing less than to have to shake the Pistons' hands after losing. Everybody can relate to that feeling. It sucks, right? And then you finally conquer them. You at least want the satisfaction, and you want to send the message of like, okay, all's, all's fair in love and war. And Isaiah Thomas is just ducking off the court, and Bill Lambeer is strutting off the court, and you never get that moment. Um, you know, of course you're going to be angry about it, but you're going to be even more excited about blowing up that controversy for the next 30 years, which is obviously what Jordan's done. Um, the sportsmanship thing killed me. I mean, J.R. Smith, you know, like, uh, you know, tying someone, untying someone's shoes or Lance Stevenson blowing in LeBron's ear. I mean, that's the stuff that just gets under my skin. Just play basketball, right? Yeah, no, that's that, I see where you're coming from with that. I always thought it was just more funny than anything else, and you know, I hate pl- people who think it's funny, Michael. It's not There's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I just cracked your list. Michael B. Pina is on my list. <laughs> Hated NBA media figures. Okay, so I I want to get into this person that I'm about to talk about, uh, and I have I think people who know me really well or have watched basketball with me over the past 10, 15 years, know how much I do not like this person. And it it, it kind of just like, I wouldn't say it increases because this person is so low on the totem pole of relevance that uh, there's really no reason for me to even think about him that much. But I'm going with uh, Derek Fisher. He was the... the, uh, first person that popped into my head when you first sent over the uh, text message letting me know that this was what we were going to be discussing on today's episode. Um, you know, obviously, again, I don't actually hate him. I don't know him, whatever. Uh, yeah, in I'll the get cont- through it. Let's, let's get to the yeah. transgressions list, all right? He I quit mean, on the Jazz. It, the Jazz fans hate him. I mean, they really no, hate no. him. Let's, yeah, let's, let's take it from the top. I mean... He's just a political backstabber. He's d- delusional. Um, the point four shot is one of the most garbage, overrated, big time moments in NBA history. Wow. They basically were like, this shouldn't have been allowed after it happened. Uh, the fact that the Spurs um, uh, tried to petition that and were overruled on the same day is just a joke. It was a garbage shot. It, it erased one of the true greatest shots of all time, which was Tim Duncan's over Shaquille O'Neal, which I watched right before we started recording. Great shot. It also robbed us of a Spurs uh, Timberwolves uh, Western Conference Finals that would have put uh, KG against Duncan. Like that would have been awesome. Instead, we got that stupid Lakers team going to the finals and losing to the Pistons. It's just like a big well, bummer. Um, I mean, don't don't uh, cry too much for KG. He would have been out in five. I mean, okay. don't worry about that. 
I know he's dragging like Terrell Brandon and uh, Latrell Sprewells. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's world. also he's also just losing his individual matchup pretty handily to a, a much uh, superior oh, player. Okay. But, okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, 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 anyway. Um, so uh, uh, just really going just with on the court stuff first, I want to talk also about the uh, the pull up three he hit in game four of the 2009 NBA finals with four point six seconds left. The to set the scene, the Lakers are down three. Uh, again, five seconds left. He's coming up in transition, pulls up like, I want to say five, six feet behind the three-point line. Probably was a little bit closer to the line than that. Over Jameer Nelson, who, for people who don't remember, you know, he was like, an, I think he was an all-star that season. He suffered an injury. They had Rafer Alston in for him throughout the entire playoffs. And then Stan Van Gundy decides to put Jameer Nelson into that series. And he just like wasn't there mentally or physically. He wasn't the same guy. And Jameer Nelson, like, not understanding that uh, his team was uh, up three, decides to let Derek Fisher, like, he's just backpedaling, letting Derek Fisher come up, like, giving him this huge cushion, pulls up wide open, hits the three, they lose in overtime, lose the series in five. Uh, It's just, like, moments like that where I'm just like, Derek Fisher just was, I mean, he hit the shot, great, whatever. I mean, you're in the NBA, it was a wide open look. But, like... Come on, like, it's such a, it's like, it wasn't, there was nothing heroic about it. It was kind of like just a mistake on the other team's part. And so that play in particular has always been really annoying to me. No, you sound like such a hater right now. It's beautiful. I mean, (laughs) so fast. (laughs) I know, it's great. I love it. So, I mean, the Knicks tenure as coach was just an utter disaster, right? Didn't he he disappear at one point, like go on vacation during the, like went back to LA or something during the season? Oh yeah, what happened then? Yeah. Yeah, that's a little strange. Um, The love triangle with Matt Barnes, which turned incredibly toxic, wasn't great. There was a car flipping incident as well. Yeah, yeah, a DUI. That's never good. No. Um, Dancing with the star. He was on Dancing with the Stars right before that. Just like, dude, no, like, know what you are. Come on. See, like here the, you go. Here you go. Like, this is the thing. This is why Popovich always says pound the rock, Michael, because it was a little <laughs> slow to get you going here earlier, but now you're going in. No, I mean, he has this quote. I was, uh, I, I made the mistake of going down a Derek Fisher rabbit hole this morning, just trying to come up with as much ammunition as I could. And I read this interview he did with Bleacher Report a year after the Knicks fired him. And this quote, I just like can't get over. It just sums up why he's such a loser. Um The quote is, I'm in the success lane. The one thing about me, whatever it has been or whatever I've tried to do, even in the failures number-wise or statistics-wise or whatever, I've succeeded in a major way and that won't stop. Like, what does that even mean, Ben? Like, he (laughs) just... What the hell does that even mean? First of all, I don't know. Second of all, Michael, I would like you (laughs) to invite you to my new self-help podcast. It's called The Success Lane. And in my new podcast, I will help you become a millionaire overnight. I'll help you find the love of your life. I mean, that's what it really kind of sounds like, right? He's in the success line. Yeah, you you were an absolute joke of a head coach for the New York Knicks, uh, fired in disgrace, but totally in the success lane. Also, like, he's one of those role players who, uh, you know, he's with Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal during uh, that first three-peat. He's the, he's the point guard and whatever. That's wonderful. Um but it's like, he. I think he just thinks he's he was so much more critical to all that. And then when he goes back to the Lakers after asking out of his Utah Jazz contract because he needed to be closer to medical facilities for his sick daughter, um, asks out of that contract, signs almost immediately with the Lakers, and then wins two championships, goes to three finals uh, with the Lakers, with Kobe, with Pau Gasol after that. That was the first time that he asked out of a contract. The next time, uh, I think he was bought out by the Rockets. Nothing really came of it. And then he he asks out years later, uh, early 2010s, uh, asks out of his contract with the Dallas Mavericks and uh, signs later that season. Says he wants to spend time with his family. Signs later that season with the Oklahoma City Thunder, the team that obviously had Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. They go to the NBA Finals. I mean, it's it's just like, it's ridiculous. Mark Cuban had this quote at the time that was so funny. Uh, I'm going to read it right now. Uh, quote, his kids are older. 
It's easier to fly in and out of Oklahoma City than Dallas. I understand that. It's a decision a parent has to make. Every parent has difficult decisions to make. A lot can happen in 65 days. And Cuban, you know, he's being sarcastic when he's saying all that. It's like, come on, man. Like, you want to spend time with your family and then you immediately sign with a title contender. Like, get out of here. So um, flying in and out of Oklahoma City is one of the most difficult things there is to do in the entire world. So that's that's the tell on that quote. Let's not forget there was drama when he was the L.A. Sparks coach, too. Right. Like there's this whole backstabbing incident. You know, GM winds up getting fired. Fisher doesn't play Candace Parker in a game. I mean, it does seem like um, he's just. There's always. It's something. not a coincidence. It's yeah. not a coincidence, man. Um, he's That's a the, great track record. He's All right, the, well, look, Michael, wait, you can, buried- I, one, can I say <laughs> yeah. one more thing? He's the president of the players' union. Um, oh my god! He, he, he's accused of by Billy Hunter, who's also kind of a disgrace. He's accused of uh, conducting secret backdoor negotiations with the league that would lower the players' revenue. Lord, I, I mean that that was proven to be untrue in court, but I, you know, I I don't give Derek Fisher the benefit of the doubt in any circumstance like this. Uh, I remember him uh, doing this interview years ago about how much he respected Bill Clinton. You know, they're both from Arkansas and. Uh, you know, he's just a politician. That's what Derek Fisher is. He's one of the phoniest people who's ever been involved in the NBA and uh, really thinks more highly of himself than he than he is. I don't think he would have accomplished anything if he was not on drafted onto the Los Angeles Lakers in the same year that they drafted Kobe Bryant. And um, yeah, just not very good either. Not a very good basketball player. Unbelievable work from you. Oh, an all-time <laughs> open floor rant. Um I'm not sure we're going to have uh, any other opportunity to discuss any other figures besides Derek Fisher, but we nailed him to the wall. Um, no, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, and the the whole thing with Billy Hunter, like at worst, he was guilty of not taking care of the player's interests by allowing Hunter's graft to continue for years and years and years. I mean, these guys were having like Rolex watches come out in the court documents and all this other crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you're supposed to be the head of the players union representing all the players. So, uh, if nothing else, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of willful blindness uh, occurring there. Okay, any others on your list, Michael, or um, or was this just the <laughs> Derek Fisher hate hour for you? Uh, that was mostly, that was like the big player that I really wanted to touch on. Um, there's like some other things just about the NBA that I, that I hate that I, I kind of wanted to talk about, but not in any as serious detail, I think. Um, so one of the other just kind of vague, broad concepts I wanted to talk about really quickly with you, and it's kind of weird to, to discuss and wrap your arms around, but one of the things I hate is groupthink, and that has to do with the media's coverage of the NBA, that has to do with how fans view the NBA, how n- narratives harden, how uh, you know certain reputations that are in my opinion, unfair, just kind of coalesce and and become the truth when I think that there's just more to be said about a story or a player or or whatever, what have you. Um, So like just a couple quick examples, like we talk all the time about uh, James Harden and I feel like whenever his name is discussed, criticism kind of supersedes the acknowledgement of his ability. Same goes for Dwight Howard during his prime and kind of when he went to the Lakers. And what is what, what really has happened with Dwight is he's just become this like pun, uh, this joke about, you know, farts and candy and everything. And that kind of is the first thing that gets brought up when people talk about Dwight Howard. And I'm not trying to like excuse all of his behavior or anything like that, but he did have yeah, back I mean, surgery. Like he does fart and he does really like candy. Yeah. <laughs> or at least he did for a really long time. I mean, that's the problem with some of these character caricatures, right? It's rooted yeah. in fact, and then people run with it. And that's the danger of groupthink, right? It's like you're taking something that is, you know, fairly accurate and just stretching it to the max and then running the joke and the reference into the ground over and over for years, right? Yeah, exactly. And so I just have had problems with that. It's like, if you want to make fun of Dwight, that's fine. He deserves to be made fun of quite a bit. But like, let's not also like when you do make fun of him, you should like before that you should reference the fact that he's one of the best centers of his generation. And he was one of the best rebounders of all time. And he was one of the best defensive players of all time. And 
like prime yeah, Dwight Howard was incredible, man. He was just incredible. That's what kills me about the group thing is when people want to take that stuff and say, oh, now he's not a Hall of Famer somehow. Like, he's not going to get in immediately. Like, of course he's going to get in. You know, people might not be really excited to go buy tickets to his and hear his speech. You know, I, you can you can definitely convince me that, uh, you know, StubHub's not making a killing on the Dwight Howard induction. I, I would agree there. But he's yeah. going to be in. And I think there's some people who want to, like, rewrite his career neg- uh, narrative based on that stuff. And that definitely bothers me. Yeah, and I mean the same thing. And I think to uh, maybe a lesser extent, maybe even grander, would be Chris Paul. And it's like, yes, Chris Paul is a really prickly personality on the court. He's super competitive. He argues constantly. It's really annoying. He's a stickler with the rules and all that. But it's like at the end of the day, he's one of the best point guards of all time. I just when I look at things, I'm kind of like, okay. Every time we talk about Chris Paul, we don't need to bring up that other part of his persona. Um, so that's just something that I it, it annoys me a great deal when we just talk about these players and uh, kind of like their no. broader narratives. You're the backlash to the actual haters, Michael. I, I, I appreciate that. Hating the hate is the new hate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Isn't that what they say? Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Um, all right, we probably run this co- uh, conversation to the ground, but what I want to do here is listen to your suggestions, guys. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. E- email in the players, the figures, the coaches, the owners, whoever it is that you've just always had personal dislike, you know, uh, disdain, hatred for, and tell us why. And Michael and I will probably run through some of those. Uh, either later this week uh, or early next week. And I'm sure it's going to be a long list. So guys, let loose in those emails. Have a good time with it. Uh, Let us know who's always bothered you. Um, On the flip side here, Michael, you wrote a piece recently for uh, SB Nation. It was a long feature about chemistry in the NBA. And the central premise of your piece is that, look, player movement is going out of control at this point. Like half the league is turning over almost every couple of years. Um, uh, Contracts are shorter the max level guys are getting their money, but a lot of the other players are, are maybe getting squeezed in the middle so that they're more able to bounce from place to place. Um, you know, patience and happiness among superstar players is at an all-time low. So they're looking to set up their new super team ASAP. And there's a real copycat syndrome of everybody wants to, you know, put together a, a powerhouse and, and chase a title. So that has all led to a very discombobulated day-to-day team environment. On top of that, there's no time for practice, as you point out in the story. So a lot of these new teams are sort of gelling on the fly during games. Um, And it's fascinating. It's definitely different, um, especially because of the schedule change in terms of when you get your days off and everything else. Um, It's just a different environment than it was even, you know, eight or 10 years ago. Uh, My question to you is this. After deep diving throughout the uh, you know NBA's chemistry landscape, talking to all these coaches, talking to a bunch of players, including Austin Rivers, who might make some people's most hated list, but certainly <laughs> he's the best, is, <laughs> is one of the greatest quotes in the league. Um, I'm curious. You know, the Spurs are pretty much a mess right now. Uh, if if we want to be honest about it, they still have their core principles, but they're not who they were. The Warriors finished dead last in the Western Conference this year, and they were the chemistry kings kind of coming in after the Spurs, who were sort of the the gold standard for 20 years. Who right now is actually mastering chemistry in the league, and what are their tricks? How are they able to do it? 
is is it going to last or is this the kind of a situation where you're just hoping to get lightning in a bottle Who, who's got the best practices right now michael i mean as you said the spurs were kind of the paragon here they were uh the team that everybody looked up to and so many of their uh so many employees from their front office, from their coaching staffs, have gone on to other organizations and tried to, you know, bleed out kind of the same principles that Greg Popovich used for uh, to great success over the years. I think one of the uh, one of the big success stories that I actually did not mention in the story, but was mentioned to me by various players, various coaches, and GMs, is the Milwaukee Bucks and Coach Budenholzer. Budenholzer obviously comes from Greg Popovich's tree. Uh, a lot of the same principles, a lot of the same um, ideas are there that were in San Antonio. Um, but what's really interesting to me about that and just how they've kind of valued continuity and keeping as many players together as possible. Now, obviously, Malcolm Brogdon left, and there's that was kind of an ownership thing, and that speaks to how difficult it is in today's NBA to keep everybody together. It's just it's a different environment. Um but what's really interesting about the Bucks to me is, uh, you know, first of all, relatively speaking, they haven't, that core has not been together for like a million years. It's been like two or three years, I guess you could say at max with, I mean, Middleton and Giannis have been together for a very long time. Besides that, the supporting cast has not been there, but has not been there forever either. So to t- to, to, to ha- kind of highlight them as the, the, the new shining example of, of great chemistry really speaks to the problem that's going on throughout the league. And of course, as you know, I know everyone knows who follows the NBA. If Giannis leaves, then it just implodes and Giannis could very well leave. That's definitely a possibility. Um, though I will say like a lot of people who you talk to around the NBA are not confident that he will leave. Um, but that's another another conversation for another day. No, you're so, right. I mean, they're, they're a tricky example because even before Bud got there, right, that's not that long ago, there was all sorts of questions. Why are they taking one step forward and one step back? Is Jason Kidd the right coach? Do the pieces fit? And all that stuff was lingering over them. So they were not seen as this great chemistry team until really two years ago. Now, you mentioned Giannis and Middleton. A huge aspect of their of their chemistry is that Middleton is willing to be the number two guy and doesn't have the resentment factor that a lot of number two guys might around the league in terms of wanting his own team and everything else. I think that's a, a key factor. It definitely drove the Bulls' success, definitely drove the Spurs' success. And then their other role players are all in situations where they're not being asked to do too much, but they're also being asked to do things that they do well. And I think that really helps uh, too, right? But at the same time, we're going to see those guys, even if Giannis resigns, aren't a lot of the Wesley Matthews and Robin Lopez's of the world just going to shuffle in and out? They're just going to, every couple of years, they're just going to keep cycling. I mean, it's not like the Pistons who we mentioned earlier, where it's like Lambeer, Dumars, Thomas, Finney Johnson, uh, Rodman. I mean, that group was together, you know, for more than a half decade, basically. Yeah, for sure. That's that's never going to happen again, I don't think, unless the CBA dramatically changes or the attitude of stars around the league changes, which I just don't think that's going to happen. I mean, this is evolution here. Um, to what you just said, uh, I put this in the story. And Lloyd Pierce, who was one of my favorite interviews, head coach of the Atlanta Hawks, had a lot to say about chemistry. Um, and kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word dysfunction, but the chemistry in Atlanta this year was not great. And he admitted that to me. And one of the reasons why he was really optimistic about the chemistry going forward, and as you just said, you know, plugging in pieces, making it as easy as possible, knowing that um, you're not going to have the same role players on your team year after year after year, no matter what you do. Um, you know, he talked about how uh, systematically, like investing in Trey Young and just pick and roll basketball with Trey Young, and really being able to know exactly what type of player you want as a front office and as a coaching staff from year to year to bring in to make Trey Young in the pick and roll as good as possible on both ends of the floor is really just kind of a a priority for that organization. So at least they know what their identity, what they want their identity to be. And once you know your identity, developing chemistry is so much easier. Um, Another example I want to bring up 
is the Los Angeles Lakers. And I did not, I mean, I had some quotes from Jared Dudley, who is also just an incredible quote, an incredible, uh, he offered incredible insight to the story about the Lakers and his time with the Brooklyn Nets as well. But I also talked to uh, Channing Frye, and that interview did not really make it to the story. But we talked a lot about uh, what makes LeBron James so... uh, so important when it comes to team chemistry and how much he values it and how he values team dinners and everybody getting along off the floor as much as possible. Um, And the Lakers have had great chemistry this season. And one of the big reasons why is because when you have a, a leader on your team who is so willing to get everybody on the same page off the floor, it makes it so much easier to criticize them in games, in film sessions, and lingering resentment does not pop up. So one thing Channing Fry told me about when he was with the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron James, uh, you know, they could talk to anyone on the team about, hey, like, if they saw someone, let's say, just like, I'm making this up, but, you know, eating an extra cupcake or a slice of cake after a practice or something like they would yell at that person and that person would be like, hey, you have to stay in shape, blah, blah, blah. And that person would not get super offended. They would not be super sensitive. Like everything was on the table with those guys when they would speak to one another. It was all honesty. And that is just something that is really difficult to to get. Uh, in a locker room in such a short amount of time. So you need those figures. You need guys like LeBron. I mean, for everything you want to say about his talent and all that, like the fact that he's willing to make sacrifices with his with his time and with his family life uh, to spend more time uh, off the floor with his teammates to try to develop that type of chemistry, it really uh, it impacts everything positively. It does. And winning helps a lot, too. I mean, the Lakers are a great chemistry story or a great prism for for your angle here because uh, they were horrible. Their chemistry was terrible two years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's worried about the trades, your magic and all those distractions. I mean, it was it was not great and nobody was happy. Um, the Anthony Davis trade happens. You know, a lot of people, you know, who are younger, maybe on different timelines are out. A lot of vets are brought in. Everyone sort of realizes they share the same timeline with this group. And then uh, on top of it, LeBron, who has sort of been in and out, you know, from a, a leadership standpoint, kind of doing his own thing that first year and, and hard to read for some of his teammates, really buys in because the Davis thing works so well. And now all of a sudden it's like completely kumbaya and they're just running through the whole league. I've it, never it, seen a, a turnaround that fast in my life. It's it's like a it's a very much a, a chicken or an egg proposition, right? Like winning and success and chemistry and which one kind of informs the other. Um, so you're right to bring up the fact that he was like, that was not great leadership by LeBron in his first year with Los Angeles. I, I do not know whether or not he was, you know, instigating team dinners or anything like that that year. But from what you hear, I don't think that was the case. And then once you get AD and you get more veterans in, in house, um, there's more of a buy-in on his end. And once that happens, I think the the, the ability to win um, becomes a lot easier. And one tricky part about this for LeBron specifically is that like he is taking on the burden of being sort of a front office executive uh, when he's moving and shaking and redesigning the Lakers organization. And he's not the only one who's doing that, right? You're seeing these power plays around the, the, uh, the league. And so it all sounds well and good if James Harden's going to trade Chris Paul for Russell Westbrook or LeBron's going to orchestrate a trade of the young pieces for Anthony Davis like it makes sense on the trade machine we've all played it out you know sometimes before it's even happened these scenarios but the day-to-day part of it is a lot trickier like imagine if you're LeBron and you're making these high-level decisions or at least you know contributing to them and then you have to sit next to a guy or four guys in the locker room on a day-by-day basis and if they're playing well that's going to influence your thinking and if one of them happens to have a bad game it's natural to be like, well, let's get this guy out of here, right? And that's just a, a hard dance. And it's one of those things where it goes back to this idea of separation of powers, you know? Is the NBA better off uh, or are teams looking to cultivate dynasties in a certain degree better off uh, with stronger, more independent, um, you know, management? Like, I guess that's one of my questions after reading your piece, Michael. What do you think? Like, has it gone too far? Has it swung the player empowerment thing? gone to a direction where it's just not possible for 
you know, anything to last more than like the three years that Golden State was able to keep Kevin Durant uh, in town? Um, or should there be kind of a correction where either there's longer contracts in the CBA or whether, uh, you know, agents are advising players like slow down. There's no rush. Like, let's try to put something together and, and make it last. Don't get so caught up in the social media environment of you have to win this year and, and, and try to seek shortcuts, try to build something that will, will last a longer deal. Uh, you know, what do you think? I mean, is it hoping for an, <laughs> an impossibility or is there some way for that to, to, re, to recorrect? Yeah, I mean, it's such a difficult question to answer because at the end of the day, the most important asset to any organization and the most important characters in the league are the superstars, and they drive so much. And so um, I think when you look at all the success that the San Antonio Spurs had for so many years, and then they kind of bungle the Kawhi Leonard situation, in my opinion, it's because they were not, they did not in time acknowledge kind of the changing uh the changing winds of the nba and the nba's power structure and uh appeasing Kawhi even more than they already were was probably the play there and they kind of refused to do it and that was an organization-wide decision at the end of the day and um so like Getting more power into front offices, I just don't think that that will work because if you want to win consistently, you need stars. You need multiple stars and you need to keep them as happy as possible so that they will stay. And so like... Okay, let let me phrase this another way, right? So when we talk about good owners, we always say, oh, they hire the right guys Mm -hmm. and they let them do the job, right? Well, now if we're thinking about superstar level guys as basically being franchises in and of themselves... Is there a scenario where like, you know, we've heard of a player's coach, right? Like Michael Jordan playing for Doug Collins. And then when it's time for him to go to the Wizards, he's like, who do I want to coach me? Oh, I know the guy who let me shoot 35 times a game. (laughs) And when I was like 26 years old, I'm going to bring him back and he's going to coach me in Washington, right? Um, Is it possible we start to see sort of hand-selected GMs? Maybe it's guys' agents turn uh, into GMs. Maybe it's just someone that they've built up a rapport with over the course of their career, where they're sort of like installing that person at the head of the organization, giving the the management, you know, marching orders more or less, you know, so it's a it's a changed relationship dynamic where the player is kind of calling the shots, but he's still a little bit more hands off to a certain degree. And then he's trusting that management is going to balance his long term and short term interests. Does that make sense? Like, could we see that evolving that direction? Because my argument is this, man. It's kind of harmful to these guys' reputations and and to their long-term opportunity to maximize title windows if they're allowed to dictate things. Kawhi Leonard's cut short the number of titles he's going to be able to win with that forcing the trade of Paul George at that time, given how many assets they had to give up, right? Uh, LeBron James, with some of his moves, he's thrown away seasons. That first Lakers season was thrown away um, because they weren't all on the same page in terms of how to build a team around him. Kevin Durant, to me, made a terrible decision going to Brooklyn, and I'm going to be impressed if they ever win a title with him there. I would be shocked if they do. Um, Again, that, that seems like something where if you had had better... Uh, you know, a better relationship with management or a better understanding of of management, uh, you wouldn't be in a situation where Kenny Atkinson's getting fired midseason uh, right off the top, and you know the team sort of looks listless all season long. Does, do those things make sense? Do those criticisms no. ring true? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just don't know what more because, uh, like, at the end of the day, if you're a GM or you're a president of basketball ops or whatever. Like you need to obviously keep the the star player um, motivated and uh, satisfied with what's happening and and get all buy in from him and every, all that. But like you also have like fifteen other guys on the roster that you got to worry about, and you have the draft, and you have just this this, this million different other responsibilities. Like when I look at what the Warriors did with Durant, I just I don't know if they could have done more. I mean, Bob Myers is just like we've talked about it on the last episode or a couple episodes back, like. He's just this symbol of selflessness, and like, why would you not want to play for that team? Why would you not want to? Why, the beef that K- KD had with Steve Kerr is just bizarre to this day. Playing with the most selfless superstar in NBA history, arguably, and Steph Curry, and KD just wanted more. I don't know what else you could do there. Right. I don't like well, hiring so, well, his friends, like or his agent or whatever. I don't think that would appease him. No, I granted. So let's just say this: if KD wants to go to Brooklyn, shouldn't the deal be? 
I want to go play with Kyrie. I want to have this executive replace Sean Marks, and I want this coach as the coach. Like, shouldn't we just put everything on the table? And this is now like, <laughs> you know, they're the Brooklyn Durants, you know? And I think right now we're kind of in this situation where players still kind of pretend like they're not pulling the strings. In a lot of cases, they're really big-time players have an enormous influence over what their organizations do, right? And the, the dynamic with LeBron and Rich Paul is, is sort of like what I'm getting at, right? Like Rich Paul has been deputized to sort of re- represent LeBron's interest in some of these things and try to get the Lakers into a better position. I'm wondering if we can't go back to the way it was, does, do we just get to this a, a more naked reality where that's what it is? It's like if you want to get uh, Kevin Durant, it's not about hiring his high school coach as an, an assistant, a player development guy on your staff. It's about letting him choose your GM and your coach up front. That's just part of the deal. What do you think? I mean, that's just – that would be a very depressing reality for the NBA, especially if contracts – can only go up to five years and four years for, uh, you know, incoming free agents. Like, I just don't know any owner who would sacrifice, uh, like, an intelligent mind. Like, if someone was like, I'll sign with the uh, with the uh, Houston Rockets, but only if, um, you know, my, you replace Daryl Morey with my uncle, who, like... Well, presumably these guys are smart enough not to just, like, have their family members into jobs that they're not uh, good enough at. I guess what I'm envisioning is... (laughs) Well, here's what I'm envisioning. LeBron wants to go back to Cleveland, right? And instead of insisting on Tristan Thompson and Clutch Klein getting some crazy four-year contract, he's like, I want this guy as the GM, right? And I want to... And, like, I mean, ultimately they did replace David Blatt with Teron Liu. It took a while, but would everybody have been better off if LeBron shows up and he's like, yeah, sorry, David Blatt, like, I don't respect your fighter pli- pilot uh, resume. You're out. Uh, <laughs> Teron Liu is going to be the coach. And, you know, here's here's who I want as the GM. And, you know, I think that they, you know, it could evolve to a point where they understand who's respected. It's almost like, you know, Clutch is interviewing GM candidates to run the job. I mean, are we sure that this in-between ground is better than that version where it's just sort of like, all the responsibility falls on who it should fall on. Uh, if the team doesn't work out, you can blame the super the super player who's like, you know, everything's built around. I, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's going to evolve in that direction. And I'm not necessarily resistant to it because I do feel like we're kind of like ha- stuck halfway right now. But it's like one of the great, most interesting parts of the article for me in the reporting process was Steve Kerr, who basically said that the aesthetic of NBA basketball is worse off with the turnover. And you'll never see, you know, how his Warriors teams have played over the past few years, specifically like those first two years, uh, 2015, 2016, when guys were just, you know, they just knew everybody knew everybody else's tendencies. You look at those Spurs teams from earlier in the decade with Boris Diaw and TD and and Manu and Tony Parker and just players who have been with each other for so long and and again, know each other's strengths and weaknesses. Um, But like you look at, uh, you know, if LeBron had the power to just make every decision personnel wise or in the front office of the organization he works for, normally, like, you know, there's a reason why people are in those positions. So I, what I think about is when he went to the Miami Heat and, you know, he goes into Pat Riley's office and he's basically like, you're going to be the coach, right? When they get off to that rocky start and Eric Spolstra is just kind of dangling in the wind. And imagine what would have happened to those that Miami Heat. Uh, his my, his tenure with the Miami Heat over those four years had Pat Riley come down, uh, and you know they let Eric Spoelstra go. Like I just don't. And where is that organization today? Even so, it's just like you gotta. It's 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 impossible. It's truly an impossible conundrum. I do not have the answers. Um, it's 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 fascinating though. Yeah, the best counterexample for what I'm laying out here, why it wouldn't work, is the Charlotte Hornets. Because Michael Jordan has about six different Jordans in his front office. He's got like his high school roommate or his college roommate on staff in a key front office position. Um, you know, he's he's gone sort of the nepotistic route where, you know, it's a natural thing to do. You want to ha- you empower the, the people who you trust. So even if it's not your uncle, like, you know, hopefully it wouldn't be. Um, you know, you're going to be subjected to the same biases that owners are when they're trying to select personnel, and, and that could get dicey. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I just think that we are. This chemistry thing, to me, it all boils down to the shifting power balance, right? Of like who actually runs things, who actually controls things. And I find it very difficult to imagine the Players Association is going to allow, um, you know, major changes to the contract structures that could kind of fix this thing. Uh, They don't want to have guys locked up in super long-term deals um, necessarily uh, because it, it amounts to dead money. I think everybody, I think both sides are actually pretty happy with Mm -hmm. Uh, the way the contracts are structured at this point. So um, the only other changes can kind of happen as evolutions. But if we're sitting here and saying by 2025, there's a free agency pitch where Dolan still hasn't gotten anyone and his pitch (laughs) to, you know, whoever it might be, John Morant at that point is that, you know, you can pick the GM and the coach. And it's not like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. It's like we will hire you guys all as a package and announce you together at the same press conference. It wouldn't surprise me, no matter how revolting that might seem today. Uh, it just wouldn't shock me, you know, based on how much uh, change we've already seen here over the last decade. All right, Michael, we have run out of time talking about hatred and chemistry, two incredible topics uh, of NBA discourse. But guess what? On the next episode later this week, we will be breaking down episodes three and four of The Last Dance Um, everything Michael Jordan had to say about the Pistons, the Dennis Rodman story, and everything else. And in addition, we will be answering an incredible question from a 12-year-old in Chicago named Jacob who wanted us to pick our own expansion franchises, and we will be drafting those and comparing head-to-head who's got the better city, who's got the better team name, who's got the better starting five, uh, and everything else, Michael. I cannot wait for that conversation uh, later this week. Until then, guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter, at Ben Golliver. Check out my Washington Post Sports newsletter this week for a breakdown of why the Pistons, the Bad Boys Pistons, were more than just Michael Jordan's hate. Until later this week, Michael, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.